Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the final part of our five-part series focused on the initial invasion of Iraq in 2003. Now, we decided to go down this route rather than bouncing around from one conflict to the next in the hopes that you might get a little more out of the episode if we're able to tell a story chronologically from one to the next to the next to the next. So to back up a little bit, we'll get a high-level overview of where we've been so far, and then we'll dive into today's story. So we started the series out with part one focused on hospital apprentice Luis Fonseca. We talked quite a bit about the initial lead up to the 2003 invasion of Iraq. We then had American and coalition forces crossing the berm and talked about Fonseca and his Navy Cross citation during the Battle of Nasiriyah. As the Marines continued their push north, we talked about First Lieutenant Brian Shantosh, uh, still not in Baghdad, but but continuing their advance Shantosh was leading an anti-armor platoon that was ambushed at pretty close range by one to 200 enemy fighters starting to wear civilian attire at this point. And this was March 25th. So just a few days after the invasion kicks off, and you're already starting to see a little bit of adjustment in terms of the Iraqi defender tactics. Nonetheless, Shantosh and his men drove into the ambush, so turned off the road, drove into the attackers. And as the 50 caliber machine gunner opened up on the enemy fighters in a kind of modified trench system. Shantosh left the vehicle and led a few Marines to clear this area on foot. He used AK-47s and captured RPGs to do so before moving back into his vehicle to continue their advance to Baghdad. We continued talking about Marines uh, moving into, into Baghdad in early April, April 8th of 2003, when Sergeant Scott Montoya, who's serving with the 23rd Marines, a reserve Marine unit, helped lead one of the pushes into Baghdad. Montoya was a scout sniper and was following up, kind of reinforcing some of his elements, some of his battalion elements. They came into pretty heavy contact with Iraqi forces. And when he got to the front, he made multiple trips into you know the kill zone, into the open streets, the deadly streets of Baghdad to rescue multiple Marines and an Iraqi civilian. He, just like Shantosh and Fonseca before him, would be awarded the Navy Cross for those actions. We then stayed in Baghdad, but shifted um, a few days to, um, shifted a few days, excuse me, to April 13th, 2003, and shifted to the Army, where we talked about Private Dwayne Turner, who was serving as a combat medic with the 101st Airborne Division, 3rd Battalion, 502nd Infantry, to be specific. And Turner was with his men when they came under attack. Again, we, we've kind of seen the, the front lines disappear, and now the enemy can be in any direction. And that's what Turner and his men experienced. Turner was wounded multiple times in this engagement, shrapnel all across his body, shot in the arm, broken arm from a gunshot wound, and shot in the leg, but never stopped treating soldiers and continued, treated upwards of 16 of his brothers that day and kept at least a couple alive on the battlefield. For that action, Turner made it home. And, uh, and was awarded the Silver Star. Now, if we move from that action on April 13, 2003, and step back a little bit, we find that the Battle of Baghdad has ended, right? With the Battle of Baghdad ending is, is the, the end of the formal, the formal rule of Saddam Hussein and the Ba'ath Party. That's still, that doesn't mean that all military action has ceased. You're still seeing militias and 
militant groups stand up all across the country. But in terms of direction coming from the top, that's kind of stopped at this point. But we also see a shift in the mission. And thus far, up until the the first week or so of April, the performance by the coalition and by the United States military is superb. You know, when we're talking about war fighting, winning and fighting, fighting and winning on the battlefield, the first, you know, this period of time, the initial invasion from, from the end of March to early April is a case study. I mean, it was incredible. They accomplished more than many expected with a, with a lower loss of American life and coalition life. It was an incredible few weeks. But by the end of the Battle of Baghdad, there's no longer a formal military threat opposing the United States and the coalition. So we're going to have to shift the focus a little bit to what I'll call loosely uh, nation building. Now, this is going to sound a little bit silly maybe, but to kind of drive the point home, it's not as though we were able to pull all of the Iraqi citizens before the war and we could look down and say, hey, 87% want Saddam out at any cost. It's kind of the opposite in these military operations, or especially in an invasion. You know, we're, we're taking our best, we're, we're utilizing as much intelligence as we can and, and making the moves we think are, are the right moves. But you actually have to take the action, in this case, invading Iraq and, and toppling the Ba'ath Party. And then you go out to the people to sell what you've done, in essence, right? Knock on doors. Can we count on your vote? Um, it sounds backwards, but it's not realistic for that to happen the other way, right? It's not as though the coalition could go in and just take Nasiriyah and set up camp and say, hey, once we get this whole town on our side, we'll move forward while the entire Iraqi military is still out there under Saddam's control. So it sounds a little bit backwards, but it's kind of the nature of the beast when you're talking about some of these large military operations. Now, that said, I want to stay on that thread of of these, these large operations, when we, when I look at a map and I see, you know, World War II is just a great example because you tend to see this like curtain falling over. If Nazi Germany is taking over territory, then it's a black curtain, right? Or a red curtain. And when the allies are beating it back, maybe that curtain is disappearing. But if you think about a military action, it, it's easy to think of these military actions like a weather system almost, right? Like here it comes, you can see it coming. And, and by nine o'clock on Tuesday, the snowstorm hits your area. And if you live in that city, let's say Nashville gets hit with a snowstorm, everybody gets it, right? Every street, every townhome, every apartment, everybody's got to deal with ice on their streets. Everybody's got to deal with shoveling snow. The snowstorm didn't miss this neighborhood or it didn't, didn't, didn't pass over your home. Everybody got it. That's not how these military operations play out. They tend to be much more concerted narrow thrusts into a country. For example, in the invasion of Iraq, if you live just 10 miles off the main allied main coalition avenue of approach, it might be mid-April and you've never even seen a coalition soldier face-to-face. You've probably seen some aircraft, you've probably seen some smoke in the distance, heard some booms, but it's not crazy to think that the bulk of the Iraq population, the Iraqi population, by mid-April has not had any contact, any direct contact with coalition forces and has heard over the radio or over TV that their government has fallen. But they've not yet felt any direct impact of this major operation. But those are the people that 
we need to win over to our side and not even so much our side. It's maybe another way to say it is these are the people that we are there to help, right? The name of the whole thing is called Operation Iraqi Freedom. We have to let, we got to, we got to convince them, um, sell them on what's happening now because it's already happened. Hey, we did this for you in a sense. Um, hope you like it. And again, it's kind of a weird thought that we're in Baghdad, we're through Nazaria, through Karbala, through all these different areas, but there's still going to be so many Iraqis, the bulk of the Iraqi population that hasn't yet had any contact with American forces or coalition forces. So we're going to have to, again, sell that concept. And that is going to fall to the soldiers on the ground. So the planning is going to happen way up top and back in Washington, D.C. and around the world. But the actual execution of that is going to fall on people like Sergeant Troy Jenkins and his fellow soldiers in the 3rd Battalion or in Bravo Company, 3rd Battalion, 1187, or I'm stumbling over this, Bravo Company, 3rd Battalion, 187 Infantry Regiment. That's part of the 101st Airborne Division, the Rakasans. Those are going to be the people carrying out this task of selling the invasion, if you will, to the Iraqi people on the ground after it's happened. Now, in order to do that, Jenkins and, and soldiers like him across Iraq are going to have to spread out. Because again, these were very narrow thrusts up certain avenues of approach to get to Baghdad. And those people that live just 10 miles off the road haven't yet had interaction with coalition forces. And like we talked about on the last episode, the the rule of law is really going to sit with the, the military at this point, the United States and the coalition military, until a kind of provisional Iraqi government can be stood up and the police force can be trained. So we've got to get out there. And, and show that we're here to help. And what can we do to assist and maybe help rebuild something? If nothing else, provide security for the citizens. But this is a pretty heavy ask for Jenkins and, and soldiers like him and, and for his men. Troy Jenkins is an infantryman. He signed up to be an infantryman. He actually served a couple of years in the Marine Corps, um, then came over to the, uh, to the Army Infantry and deployed to Afghanistan. So he's, he's got some combat experience, more than many of the soldiers in his, in his ranks that he'd be leading. But as an infantry soldier in the army, you're trained to close with and destroy the enemy. In fact, that's probably why a lot of people sign up. That's the marketing pitch, right? It's, this is what you're going to do. People sign up for that reason. And they're good at it. Sergeant Jenkins is good at it. That's how he made it through deployment in Afghanistan. That's, that's how he and his men are alive today in mid-April by, or mid to late April, of 2003. They've survived this invasion thus far because they are good at that trade. They are, they are good infantrymen. But if we're going to win the population and win the support of the locals, you can't just be a steely-eyed killer all day, every day, and be on alert for enemy ambushes and IEDs and all of that. You have to be approachable. You have to be able to engage with the local population. And these two items are a little bit in conflict with each other. You know, it's, it's, you can still be on guard and engage with somebody in, in a, in a district or a a village, but can you truly be 100% on guard? And that's where this challenging ask comes in across the military and, and for Sergeant Jenkins and his men is they're going to be asked, um, to find that balance and to find that balance continually throughout the day. So it's not like they walk out the gate and they say, hey, today we're at 90% um, security and 10% meet with the locals. They're going to have to adjust this as they go based off of what they see on the ground in the situation. And there's going to be a lot that falls to intuition. When can you 
you know, I say let your guard down, but that's not everyone will do that, right? You'll still have people pulling security. You'll still have people looking out for threats and, and there's going to be, but there's going to be times where you have to, and how about this? Take your hand off your weapon, shake a hand, right? So even that is, is letting your guard down just a little bit. And that is what's being asked of Sergeant Jenkins and his men. And again, the soldiers and Marines across Iraq, it's incredible. It sounds like not a lot, but think of the emotional toll, the psychological toll that would that would weigh on you, how that would weigh on you, knowing that there are still people around every corner that want to kill you. But the quickest way out of there may not be just hunting them down and killing them, but you might have to. On Tuesday, you might be kicking in doors and engaging in deadly close-range urban combat. And then a few days later, you're shaking hands and handing out coloring books to children in a local school. This back and forth and figuring out when to turn it on, when to turn it down, never really turn it off, is is it's hard to think about, um, let alone execute in the moment. And you're going to have Sergeant Jenkins and soldiers younger than him, um, as young as 18, 17 sometimes, having to figure this out on the fly. And where they're going to look for that direction is their non-commissioned officers on the ground like Sergeant Troy Jenkins. Now that takes us to the 19th of April, 2003, where Sergeant Jenkins and his men from Bravo companies, fellow soldiers from Bravo company, third battalion, 187 infantry are on a dismounted patrol in an area called Dora, uh, Dora, um, Iraq. I guess it's a, it's a, it's a neighborhood within Baghdad. So it's kind of on the Southern portion of Baghdad. They're on a dismounted patrol and we're going to get into the re- the fog of war hits is the best way to say that. That's the reason that I wanted to talk about Sergeant Jenkins' story here is this, we're going to group a lot of things together, but it's loosely called the fog of war, the confusion of combat. It's messy. It's, it's not clear. It's challenging. And after something happens, even with multiple witnesses, sometimes you get different accounts of the event. And to be blunt, like that sucks. And it's frustrating because we want to know what happened, especially if there's somebody there that, that watched an event take place. We want to know, hey, go ahead and write this out. And then, bam, we've got to report exactly what happened. But that's just not how combat plays out. That's not warfare. And it's, you know, to say it again, it's messy. And what we're going to get into here with Sergeant Troy Jenkins is messy. So there are a few things um, that are agreed upon in terms of Sergeant Jenkins and his story. It's agreed upon that he and his men were on a dismounted patrol in Dora, Baghdad, Dora, the area of South Baghdad in Iraq. Um, it's agreed upon that there is some sort of unexploded ordnance, UXO is the term we used. And it's agreed upon that there was a, at least within the general vicinity, a young Iraqi child, a little girl. Now, when you look up Sergeant Troy Jenkins today, you're going to find the official Department of Defense release, and it's vague. It references an explosion. But if you dig beyond that, which is which is standard, um, if you look up any any soldier or any incident in Iraq and Afghanistan over the last 20 years, you're going to find a pretty vague description of the events on the ground. That's that's a standard Department of Defense release. But if you start digging a little bit further and, and see what folks said who were on the ground or other eyewitness accounts, or people within their unit, you start to gather a little bit of a different picture. And the challenge here with Sergeant Jenkins is that there were multiple accounts relayed of what happened on the ground. 
I'm going to talk through each one of those, or at least kind of summarize them into three general narratives of what may have happened that day on April 19th, 2003. But before I get into those, I want to lead off with, it's the end state that matters. We're going to wrap up with the end state of this day. And I think that's what matters in this story. But let's get into what happened on April 19th. Option one, if you will, options or or narrative one maybe is the way to say it, is while they're on patrol, Jenkins and his men are approached by a young Iraqi girl holding a unexploded ordnance, a cluster bomb. These were dropped by the U.S. and coalition military all over Iraq. It was a major problem right after the invasion and actually for a long time. Um, these munitions sat across the battlefield unexploded and they were a threat to everybody, to children, to animals, to to people driving to work, to coalition soldiers. So narrative one is that this young Iraqi girl brings a unexploded ordinance to the patrol. Not uncommon. Think about this. Even in the United States today, a child finds something, brings it to the nearest adult, right? Um, as she is bringing it to the patrol, Sergeant Jenkins recognizes the device recognizes how volatile these are. These cluster munitions were designed to have already exploded. So if you have something that that the fuse was set and it was set to it was prime to go and then it didn't, that's not something you want to spend very much time around. Cluster bomb, excuse me, it's I should explain this. It's a smaller bomb within a larger bomb. So think of when you, when you drop a a big bomb, it, it clusters out into a lot of little um, smaller munitions that can be used for various purposes. Um, but then those either detonate when they hit the ground or I think we used to have some that would lay as mines, but they're incredibly volatile, incredibly deadly. And it appears that's what this girl has. Now, Sergeant Jenkins recognizes the danger this poses to her and to his men. And again, narrative one, he lunges at the girl to move her away from this as she puts it on the ground and it detonates. Version two of the story or narrative two and what makes this challenging is even the Department of Defense went back and forth between some of these. So these aren't just made up tales or rumors. You'll hear official accounts that kind of hint at, at each one of these. Narrative two is that this young girl intended to do harm to Jenkins, to Sergeant Jenkins and his men. And likely she was put up to it. You would see this often early in the war where children were given something to throw at the Americans or carry a weapon towards the Americans was that was a horrible one. Americans would shoot and kill a child and then be blamed for that when this poor child had no idea what they were doing. Either way, narrative two is that this girl approaches the Americans with intent of doing harm and throws this device at them. Sergeant Jenkins recognizes the, again, the volatility of the CUXO could go off at any moment, lunges towards that. So towards the girl, towards the UXO that's coming their way. There are some reports that he even attempted to place himself over the device either way moves towards it, towards the, um, towards the, uh, the UXO again, as it detonates version three or narrative three within this story is this, you know, to, to, to not overuse the term, but the messiness of war and narrative three is along the lines that this UXO just went off. The little girl may have just been in the vicinity, may have been playing with it, in fact, which also was a major issue early in the war in Iraq. And that Sergeant Jenkins maybe saw it, maybe didn't, but was closest to the device and closest to the girl um, as it detonated. So we tend to have 
those are our three kind of narratives that you'll see about Sergeant Troy Jenkins. And they vary widely, right? It's like these, it's like very little differences, but also very, very big differences between each one of those. But again, I think it's the end state that matters and, and the device detonates no matter what happens in the lead up to it, the device detonates and severely wounds Jenkins. He's going to take the bulk of the explosion. He'll lose on the spot a leg and, and multiple fingers and is loaded into a medevac, still alive, and transported um, off the battlefield. As he's, as he's being loaded, one of his um, last comments getting on the bird was asking if his guys were okay, if that tells you anything. Unfortunately, a few days later, as Sergeant Jenkins is being moved for additional care, on April 24th, 2003, at the age of 25, he died from his wounds sustained during this incident. Now, I started his story by saying it's the end state that matters. And it's worth diving into that. No matter the narrative of what led up to that detonation, here is how it shook out. There were three more American soldiers wounded in this blast. They all survived. That Iraqi girl was also wounded in the blast. She was rushed to an Iraqi hospital, eventually sent to an American hospital, and finally released to go home. That means that because Sergeant Troy Jenkins sustained or you know, took on the, the bulk of the blast from this UXO, It didn't hit the three American soldiers and it didn't hit that young Iraqi girl. And that is four people that went home to see their families, to see their parents, their brothers, their sisters, their children. It's generational. Those people very, very likely are still alive today, carrying on hopefully happy lives. And to me, that is the legacy of Sergeant Troy Jenkins giving his life so that others might live. Now that's going to wrap up our mini series on the first part or the initial invasion of Iraq in 2003. I think we'll probably jump into a few more one-off episodes as we get around the holidays. It's, it's early December here now, but before long, we'll dive into another mini series. I've got a few ideas in mind, but would love any feedback. Send a note. Let me know what you thought of the mini series concept or if there's any that you'd like to see us tackle going forward. Talk to you soon. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.